I like mine, Gabriel. Just finished a lovely cup of tea out of my Europolex branded mug. What a treat. I, I, still, I still haven't got one. Which, what do you have? I just have the mug, just a mug with the, the star and the pie chart enlarged on one side. It's a good solid mug, actually. Good, good. Hello and welcome back to the Europolex podcast, a podcast so original that the Prime Minister of Luxembourg is thinking about copying it for his dissertation. I'm Ewan Healy and with me, of course, is my very good friend, Gabriel Hedengren. Hi, hi, Ewan. That's a, a good joke, good joke. Good, good start <laughs> to the podcast, good political jab there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. A brutal, brutal takedown. I hope he listens to the podcast. He's going to be really upset. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good. I'm recording out of Lisbon this time around. Mm. Back to back to traveling. I'm here for the web summit, so a huge tech conference. And then uh, I guess it's funny connection because you're obviously at the the only conference going on beating web summit, which is COP26, right where you are. Absolutely, the conference to end all conferences. Every single world leader, well, not quite every single, but most of the world leaders are in a big banquet hall about a mile away from where I'm sitting right now, having. Lots of very nice wine, I would imagine. It's a museum, actually, that they're all inside oh, right now. lovely. I know. must be nice. Oh, well, what's even nicer than that is this podcast. You've come to the right place, folks, because there's more to talk about than they're going to be talking about at COP, isn't there, Gabriel? Definitely, definitely. They're very limited to just one very important issue at COP, whereas with us, you get all kinds of stories. <laughs> Absolutely. And in this episode, we've got lots to talk about, including a very exciting interview that you're going to be doing uh, with Harold Schumann of Investigate Europe. He's going to be talking to us about the magnificent world of the Council of the European Union and Investigate Europe's work, covering how the council works and how votes are made there and how decisions are made behind those closed doors. But first, before we go on to all that, and of course, all of our new segments... Here's a little message on how you can support us and our headlines across the continent. Do you want to be one of the volunteers that are behind your blacks in this podcast? We're currently on the lookout for an audiovisual editor that can help our podcast and YouTube team create and edit content like what you're hearing right now. But only better, of course, we're trying to improve all the time. If you're interested in joining our team or know someone who would be, please do reach out to us at podcast at EuropeLex is, of course, run by volunteers. We aren't funded by big donors. And everything we do, including this podcast, is only possible with the help of our supporters, just like you. And if we want to do more, which we do, we need your support. So we've started sharing exclusive discussions and special content and votes on what we should contain in our coming podcasts, all on our Patreon channel. Access all of it from as little as one euro a month and support the work of EuropeLex. So don't miss out on all that good content and support us on Patreon. We start off with one of the most difficult pieces of news that we could ever have to read on this podcast, and that is that European politics has been shocked since our last episode by the tragic death of a UK politician. David Amos, an MP, a National Conservative member of the lower house of the UK National Parliament, representing the UK Conservative Party, has been murdered in a terrorist attack which took place while Amos conducted publicly advertised meetings with voters in a church in his electoral district. 
Amos was stabbed several times before being pronounced dead at the scene of the attack. And a British man named Ali Harbi Ali has been arrested at the scene for his murder, reportedly motivated by extremist Islamist beliefs, and he has been charged under terrorism laws as well. The death of Amos comes just five years after another serving UK politician was murdered at a similar meeting with voters when centre-left Labour MP Joe Cox was murdered by far-right terrorists 2016. Amos had served as an MP since 1987, representing his current constituency of South End West in the east of England since 1997. Since his death, the UK government has announced that his town of Southend will be elevated to official city status in his memory, something that Amos had campaigned for through his career. Of course, the idea of a democratically elected politician of any political background being murdered for the work that they do is is concerning for all Democrats, um, particularly those of us in the UK at the moment. And our thoughts go, of course, to his family at this really troubling time. Now to a more regular news story, I'm happy to say. It's um, Italy's local elections that took place. To be more exact, it was the second round of the local elections that took place on October 17th and 18th. While the first round saw the participation of over half of the eligible voters, this round's turnout only reached around 44% of the votes, which is obviously very low. Major metropolitan centres of the Italian peninsula, such as Rome, Milan, Naples, Bologna and Turin, elected left-of-centre mayors, mostly associated with the centre-left Democratic Party, namely Roberto Gialtieri in Rome and Stefano Lorusso in Turin. The only exception being the Adriatic port city of Trieste, where centre-right Forza Italia's Roberto Di Piazza regained the mayorship. Italy, however, wasn't the only European country to hold local elections this October. Am I right, Ewan? Absolutely right. Not the only one, and by no means the most exciting either. On October the 17th, the citizens of North Macedonia went to the polls in order to vote for the first round of the municipal council's members and mayors. The local elections took place across the 80 municipalities and, of course, the crown jewel, the capital city of Skopje. With the ruling centre-left SDSM performing poorly, the second round of the local elections and especially the mayor of Skopje have become a significant test of the government's power. Now, these second rounds took place on October the 31st with... VMRO-DPMNE, that's the longest acronym in European politics, won over half of the country's municipalities, while SDSM took fewer than 20. Even worse for the centre-left party in the capital, the incumbent SDSM uh, candidate for the mayor, Petra Shilagov, lost to VMRO's DPMNE's candidate, Danila Arsovska. Now, centre-left Prime Minister Zoran Zaev immediately announced his resignation as Prime Minister and party leader, but rejected the possibility of snap parliamentary elections. So a deeply dramatic result from local elections. We don't always have national political consequences. We'll, of course, be following up later episodes to bring you the news uh, from the landlocked Balkan country about what happens. But, of course, they'll be getting a new prime minister soon. So negotiations are underway there. So, in fact, the North Macedonian elections weren't the only local elections in the Balkans. Who would have known? The not universally recognised Kosovo also held the first round of its local elections on October 17th. The first round results from the 38 municipalities show the ruling left-wing Self-Determination Party, or Vete Vendoshe, losing a lot of races, even failing to win the mayoral race in Pristina, the capital. Actually, based on the first round results, the right-wing Serb minority party, Lista Serbe, has selected nine mayors. The National Conservative, PDK, has selected four. The center-right, LDK, two 
and the center right AAK2 as well. The remaining 21 mayoral races will go to a second round on November 14th. We'll of course bring you those results as well. And on that day, Bulgaria will also be holding their uh, elections. I don't know if it's the fourth, fifth, or sixth ones in a year. <laughs> Can't get enough of Bulgarian elections, but they will happen on that same day. So be sure to check out our coverage across all the platforms that we're on on November 14th. There'll be a big one. Now, a big non-electoral story this week in a country that is, well, very relevant for you, Gabriel, is some big news from Portugal, one of our top two Iberian nations, if you don't mind me saying. For the second time ever under the current democratic regime, the Portuguese government has failed to pass its state budget. In fact, it could very much be the first ever to lead to snap elections, a scenario that the centre-right president, Marcelo de Rebelo de Sousa, intends to follow. Now, from summer until this week just gone, ongoing negotiations between the governing centre-left Socialist Party and its left-wing allies, Left Bloc, and the Unitary Democratic Coalition, composed of uh, communists and eco-socialist parties, have been unable to find a consensus. The once famous Gerongonsa, also known as Contraption, a minority centre-left government supported through confidence supply by left-wing forces, has now met its end on Wednesday when both left-wing parliamentary groups, together with centre-right PSD and CDSPP and the Liberal IL and the right-wing Chega party all voted against the state budget, causing it to fail with 117 votes against versus 108 in favour. The situation is obviously ongoing, but as we are expecting the date of the next election, the main opposition party PSD is holding a leadership contest and whoever wins will potentially be the new candidate for the prime ministerial position. So lots to watch and and a big week for fans of political policy manoeuvring because Damn, these are some consequences. Definitely. And um, there are actually other crises going on in European politics. Go figure. Romania, the saga there surrounding the government is still going on. So in our last episode, we mentioned that the centre-right PNL-led government of Florin Cittu lost the parliament's confidence and a series of consultations and negotiations followed uh, in order to try and form uh, another coalition government. At the time of this recording, and I must uh, caveat this with saying things are happening as we speak, uh, centre-right PNL and UDMR-supported Prime Minister-designate Nikolai Chucha has just given up his mandate for the role, which means that parties will need to reconvene to find a new common candidate to submit to the president. It should be noted that with PNL being in disarray and losing many MPs to its previous leader, Ludovic Orban, the centre-left PSD is very much ahead in the polls at the moment, and the national conservative AUR is also on the rise. So snap election, as it looks now, would bring a very different parliament to the current one. So we've sort of moved from the crisis being within one party to involving parliament. It's now shifting politics quite radically if we look at the the polls out of the country. And who knows, we might have yet another snap election uh, in, uh, in 2021 or early next year um, in Europe. So uh, definitely um, holding my breath, Ewan. Yeah, I absolutely love the political stories that break just as we sit down to record. It's one of my favorite things ever when you just sit down to record, you're all ready to go, you've got your notes ready, and then oh, everything changes immediately. Truly fantastic. 
Yeah. Really fills me with joy. Meanwhile, the winds of change seem to be blowing in Hungary as polling shows the new opposition alliance being either tied or ahead of Viktor Orban's ruling Fidesz party. More specifically, according to the latest Zavex poll, the combined campaign of the six opposition parties is supported by 39% of voters, while Fidesz is supported by 35% of voters with undecided currently sitting at 23%. The six-party coalition consists of the centre-left Democratic Coalition, a centre-left Hungarian Socialist Party, the Liberal Momentum Movement, the Green Politics Can Be Different Party, Green Dialogue for Hungary, and right-wing Jobbik. In a scenario, meanwhile, where the six parties ran separately, Fidesz would lead comfortably with 47%, and DK and Jobbik would follow far behind with 19% and 14% respectively. Of course, the election is expected to take place in April, and the alliance candidate Marquise was selected as a candidate for the opposition about two weeks ago. So a lot can change uh, in any direction, but it's really interesting for anyone who is interested in opposition to uh, right-wing populism in Central and Eastern Europe, but also for anyone who's interested by complex coalitions that don't seem to make too much sense on a policy level. Yeah, it's, it's uniting against um, one enemy, isn't it, in, in, this, in the Hungarian case. But yeah, it's definitely one of the most um, exciting electoral events um, coming up next year. I think they'll get the most attention, obviously. Um, there's a little country called France as well, if I remember correctly. <laughs> but uh, it's up there, I think, the Hungarian election. And staying in the region, um, Poland's obviously in hot water at the moment in terms of its relationship to the EU. It's been a tumultuous relationship for quite some time between Poland and the European Union, but things just seem to be getting worse by the day. The ongoing dispute is over the fact that many of the national conservative law and justice-led government's policies are not in line with EU values and norms, especially regarding rights of women, LGBTQ plus people, and migrants. At the moment, Poland seems to argue that some aspects of the European legal system do not match those of the country itself, while the European Court of Justice has ruled that the government's judicial changes are violating EU law and that Poland should pay a daily fine of 1 million euros, a fine the Polish government is refusing to pay flat out. Meanwhile, Polish Prime Minister Mateusz Morawiecki has been using aggressive rhetoric against the EU, saying, among other things, that the European Commission uh, is looking to start a third world war. And this war rhetoric seems to have infuriated the EU, with many of the officials criticizing Poland's prime minister's phrasing and tone. To top it all off, the European Commission has stopped Poland's access to a 36 billion euro funding package, arguing that Warsaw must respect the fundamental ideas of the EU, so the tensions over this rule of law dispute are just continuing to escalate and there's not much pointing to it calming down anytime soon. So yes, it's in the interest of both parties to, to keep it up. But yeah, we'll definitely um, be following this closely and reporting on any sort of um, effects it has, of course, within Poland on, on law and justice, but then uh, in the relationship between the EU and Poland as well. So yeah, very fraught at the moment. And to wrap up our news stories this week, sadly, with another sad story, is the leader of centre-left Kinal uh, and PASOK in Greece, uh, Fofi Genimata, has passed away from cancer, age 56. 
She'd been an MP for a number of years, as well as the president of the super prefecture of Athens and Piraeus. Uh, and she also held ministerial positions in governments of Greece. Obviously, this comes at a time when uh, Kinal and Pasok is struggling with their identity. Uh, and obviously, the leadership election as a result will be a big task of soul searching for the party. And now to something much lighter and more positive, which is our polling highlights, Ewan. Um, as always, there have been lots of ups and downs for political parties across the continent. And Netherlands, when, with its fragmented party system, uh, features as almost every uh, episode. And this time, the Animal Rights and Left Wing Party for the Animals, or PVDD, has reached a new record high in the latest Ipsos poll with 6%, which is up from 3.8% in the March election. Also in the Netherlands, the Eurofederalist Volt reached a new record high. Uh, they reached 5% with six seats in an INO research poll, which is up from 2.4 and 3 in the election. So two very much uh, new um, interesting parties um, moving moving ahead in the Netherlands. Absolutely, and remember you can listen to our interview with Volt from the Dutch elections this year if you scroll back on your podcast feed. Now a nation that we don't often talk about in this segment is Switzerland, where the centre-right LCDM appeared in a poll for the first time, reaching 13.3% in the latest Satomo poll. The party was launched earlier this year as a merger of the centre-right PDC and centrist PBD. The same Satomo poll provided a record high also of 13.2% for the Green Party of Switzerland, which would match their, their election results of 2019. So if we cross the border to post-election Germany... Liberal FDP are reaching record highs following the elections there. They got 16% in the latest Forza poll, which is their highest result since October 2009. And if repeated in an election, it would be the party's best ever national parliament election result. So they're seeing a post-poll boost. At the same time, the centre-right alliance of CDU-CSU saw an historic low in the latest INSA poll with 18.5%. That would be their lowest results ever if repeated in an election. So the sort of dramatic shifts in German politics are just continuing on even after the electoral campaign that just transpired. So yeah, really interesting to see how how low CDU and CSU can go. Uh, I guess there's a sort of a boost for the winners um, at this at this point in time. Moving now to Croatia, where the green left Mojemo reached a new record high of 20.4% polling ahead of the centre-left SDP in second place. Mojemo has been on the rise for a while of late, but may be very slowly stabilising as the second largest party in our polling average. In Lithuania, the newly formed right-wing TTS, a merger of national conservative CPT, right-wing LTS, and the movement Uj Lietuva Virai made its first appearance in a poll with 2.7%. For more context, in the 2020 election, CPT received 6.9% of the votes. So it's still uh, down on that, but still a polling first for TTS in Lithuania. 
And finally, in Romania, the National Conservative AUR, as we alluded to earlier on, has reached an all-time record high in the latest Sociopol poll with 21%, significantly higher than the 9% they received in just last year's elections. And as we said before, with snap elections a serious possibility, this could be great news for the party. And that's all the news and polling highlights from around the continent this week. Thanks very much for listening to those, but don't go anywhere because it's time for Gabriel to sit down with journalist Harold Schumann. And of course, keep an eye on social media for our coverage of the Bulgarian elections that are coming up soon. That's the third national parliamentary election this year, and this time together with a presidential one. So lots to talk about, lots to think about. Keep an eye on our socials to keep track of that. Hey everyone, if you like this podcast and want to help us grow, be sure to subscribe and drop us a review on whatever platform it is you're listening to us on. And of course, tell your friends, your fellow political nerds all about us. That would mean the absolute world. We love making this podcast and we love it when you guys love it. So if you've got an idea for a segment, thoughts on a topic that we should be covering, or even if you just want to say hi to us, drop us an email, podcast at europolex.eu. Europolex now has merch. Do you want to support us or you're polling an election nerd like us and just want everybody to know about it? Head on to europeelects.redbubble.com and check out all our mugs, maps, t-shirts, stickers and more. We're really excited about this and our team is working on more designs all the time. Let us know how you like them. Hi, everyone. For this week's interview on the podcast, we will steer clear of individual electoral events and instead discuss the wider issue of transparency, democracy, and the functioning of the European Union as an institution, focusing especially on the most powerful of them all, if you will, the European Council. And with me to do this is Harald Schumann. Uh, Harald is a German journalist and author with an impressive career within the country's media landscape, spanning um, nearly four decades, most notably at Der Spiegel. Uh, he's now one of the team behind Investigate Europe, and that's the reason he is a guest today. So uh, welcome, Harald. Hello. Thank you for having me. To, to start off, I think it'd be good and interesting for our listeners if you could explain Investigate Europe, what you do. You're, a, you're quite a, a specific and standout outlet in, in many ways. So uh, what do you do? Why did you... Um, why, why did the publication come about and uh, and why should our listeners start reading your pieces uh, regularly? Well, we are in a certain way a child of the euro crisis because when, when this happened with the over-indebted countries, Ireland, Greece, Portugal, Spain, Cyprus, and in, uh, Italy also, when it happened in, in, the, in the second decade of our century, it was not only a big economic problem, it was also a media failure of large scale. Yeah? Because what in fact was a distribution conflict between the taxpayers of the Eurozone on the one hand and the finance industry, and in particular the German and French banks on the other hand, was redefined as an ethnic conflict between Germany and the southerners and filled with, with cultural racist resentments and so on. And I was deeply frustrated that uh, media, in particular the German ones, but also the French ones, uh, violated basic ethical standards of journalism, not only once or twice, but for several months when they 
yeah, together with their governments, argued against the left-wing Greek government, who simply said the truth that this was the rescue of Greece or the rescue of Portugal and Ireland was not about solidarity in Europe. It was just a second bank bailout. You know, not a single euro which was given as, a, as an emergency loan to those countries has ended in the national budgets of these countries, but it was immediately returned to the creditors who were mostly from France and Germany. And in the midst of this, we had this wonderful experience that I did two documentaries for the German and French TV. And my main investigative work back then was only to find friendly colleagues in the affected countries uh, who shared their contacts and their information with me. And this collaboration produced two documentaries which were overwhelmingly successful. Um, and so I thought, yes, this is how European issues need to be reported. We have to do it in a European teamwork and not from a single national perspective. So our main purpose is to overcome the national bias in reporting about European issues. You obviously, since then, you've had a number of, of specific campaigns and stories you've covered. And something you're doing at the moment that we're all very interested in at, at EuropeLex is what um, you've decided to call Secrets of the Council. So can you just explain from, from, from your point of view the role of the European Council and why citizens across Europe need to care and pay attention? You have to distinguish between the European Council, which is the meeting of the heads of state, Mrs. Merkel and her colleagues and so on, and the Council of the EU. The Council of the EU is a legislative body, and it is the major legislative body of the European Union. What you can see in TV and what sometimes is reported in the media is when the ministers or vice ministers meet and decide about this and that law and so on. But actually, the, the Council of the European Union is a big institution with more than 3,000 staff, 4,000 meetings, 150 committees, you know, it's a huge legislative body which becomes ever larger by the, every year um, because as a consequence of the single market, ever more European laws are needed. But what is actually happening in these 150 committees and in particular also in the Council of the Permanent Representatives, yeah, which you could even call sort of a shadow government on the European level, uh, what is happening there is systematically kept secret. Yeah, We as journalists and you as a citizen have no right to know what they actually discuss. We have no right to know which government takes which position regarding the, the, the law proposals which are done by the European Commission. And, you know, this is... This is absurd. It, it violates permanently the European Treaty, which promises that legislation has to be done as open as possible and as near to the citizens as possible. Um, and they justify this secrecy with that it is so complicated to find a common position um, between these 27 governments. So they treat every law, every European law they decide upon they treat as, it, as if it were a, an international treaty, which has to be negotiated by diplomatic means. And this, of course, includes full secrecy. But 
And this is very important. Because this is secret, it is, of course, the best way for well-organized economic lobbies to influence the legislation. Because, because there is no public scrutiny, so we do not know what our governments actually do on the Brussels level. So they can easily follow a certain lobby line or they can do uh, secret deals. I give you more in this fund and so you agree with us in this law. Um, this has nothing to do with a transparent democracy. And so we decided that we should try to go after what happens in these council structures systematically. We called it the secrets of the council. And we had already some successes. What illustrates the best how absurd this way of legislation is, is the fate of the proposal which the EU Commission has done in 2015, uh, making mandatory the country-by-country -country reporting of transnational companies about how many taxes they pay in which country, um, how their turnover is in this country, and how many employees they have in these countries. Um, the purpose of this law proposal was to make at least publicly visible how these transnational companies organize their tax avoid avoidance. Yeah? The, the, the background is there is no European tax policy as such because when European Union decides about tax issues, unanimity is uh, necessary and there is always at least one of the 27 who opposes. So there is nearly well, very few European tax laws. So the Commission, because the tax avoidance, according to their estimates, costs European um, state coffers at least 50 to 70 billion euros per year. They wanted to make the transnational companies um, to publish where they pay their taxes and how much. Um, and it is already proven that it actually works because for banks and for resource for mining companies, um, this um, is already mandatory and they changed their behavior and how they use tax havens. So the idea was very well understood. I'm quite sure 95% of the European citizens would be in favor of this law. But what happened is the German government decided to protect the German transnational companies, the, the ones which are based in Germany, and they organized a blocking minority in the council. And this was reported from the very beginning, so this was known, and, um, but nobody knew who were the allies of the Germans, because the Germans alone cannot block um, a single market law. Yeah? You need a blocking minority, which means you need either 36% of the represented population or 55% um, of the member countries. And then with help from some uh, parliamentarians, we managed to find out that among those who, together with the Germans, blocked this law for five years, were not only usual suspects like Luxembourg or Ireland or Cyprus or Malta and, and all the others, which try to, to gain with um, offering the multinationals uh, low taxes, but also the socialists in Lisbon and the social democrats in Stockholm. And then we made it public in these countries and it turned out that though that the parties, the social democratic parties in these countries had no idea what the governments do yeah, in Brussels. 
And um, in Sweden, because it was a minority government there, it was only a parliamentarian debate. It did not change the position, but in Portugal it did. Only five days after we had reported it, the Portuguese government was forced by its own party uh, to uh, change the position. And since then, the Portuguese were in favor. And then a qualified majority, 65% of population, 55% uh, of, of, of member countries, was available, was doable in the council. But later then, it turned out because the Finnish, the then Finnish presidency in 2019 tried to make it, make it to, to come to this decision. But two days before, it turned out that the German economics, economics minister had a conversation with his colleague from Croatia. And then when it came to the, to the vote, suddenly the Croatian minister voted against. So again, the law did not has not been decided. But until then, because of this discussion and because of these publications and so on, other countries became aware and then the Austrian parliament <laughs> obliged uh, the Austrian government to be in favor. So again, there was a qualified majority available, but then it took two more presidencies, the Croatian and the German ones, who did not want this law and simply did not put it on the agenda. And then finally, in May this year, the council, six years after the commission had made the proposal, the council due to the fact that, that the media put pressure on the Portuguese presidency to present this law to the, to the ministerial meetings, then they have put it to a decision and um, now it has been decided. So in a certain way, you can say, not only because of us, there was a lot of pressure from civil society organizations, but also because of our reporting from the year 2023 on, there will be a law which without our reporting would not have been done. And, you know, this, this simple example illustrates how absurd this legislation, this secret legislation in the council is organized. You know, it is fine for us as journalists, and we are happy that we have achieved that, but of course it's not correct. Journalists should not have the power to influence legislation in, in such a way, yeah? Much better would have been that it would have been public from the beginning and that there is a public debate about what the government do in Brussels so that they come under pressure. And I think if it would have been public, the whole law would have been decided in 2016 already. Sorry for this long explanation, <laughs> but it illustrates the, the, the whole absurdity of this council. And, uh, yeah, and I think, uh, yeah, I'm not sure, there's uh, lots of backs and forth <laughs> to follow there, but as you say, it does, it does illustrate something about the complicated nature of, of how it works now. And obviously that also adds to the issue of, you know, citizens and people not within these systems being able to, to understand and follow and, and, and influence what, what happens. Are there any specific topics or issues or types of legislation that, that you find are especially difficult to find information around or that there's a, a special big uh, secrecy around? No, the, the, the funny thing is they do it on principle. Yeah. The, our most recent example is the, the Digital Markets Act. You know, this is this very important law proposal of the commission in, uh, done in order to, yeah, you may say, to tame uh, Google, Amazon, Facebook, um, Apple, Microsoft, uh, the GAFAMs, the so-called platform companies. 
but also the smaller ones, for example, Booking.com or so. And the, the commission from the beginning said, this is a very important law for us uh, and for Europe because um, yeah, it's needed. These companies have much too much uncontrolled power and so on. And many governments agreed. But on the other hand, as was reported by organizations like Corporate Europe Observatory or Lobby Control, uh, it was to be seen that these companies have an enormous lobby power. From, from, from the very beginning, there was this suspicion that it might happen that because of the lobby power of these com companies, they would achieve by putting pressure on the national governments and so on, that in the council, the, the, the law would have been weakened uh, or watered down. So this is why we decided let's try to find out what actually happened in the council. From the very beginning, we started to request documents uh, which uh, tell us about the national positions taken in the respective uh, working party, as it is at the committees are called. Um, and of course, it was rejected, and I did a confirmatory appeal, and again, it was rejected, and then I asked the ombudsman to start an investigation and so on. And in parallel, of course, we tried to find out what are the national positions by trying to get leaked documents, yeah? And actually we managed this and we get from four different sources, we managed to reconstruct what happened between, let's say October last year and uh, October this year in this respective working party of the council. And it turned out, luckily, that the big majority of the governments in, Euro in, in the European Union really wants to get ahead of the GAFAMs, yeah? that they do no longer can do what they want. And at the same time, we found out and we could prove that though the two countries where most of these companies have their European headquarters, uh, that is Ireland and Luxembourg, that these two governments actually tried to water down the law proposal from the Commission and to weaken it, but the large majority of the other governments rejected yeah, this attempt, which as such is a good thing. Yeah? And it would have been ordinary journalistic work just to, to report about this debate in the council and make it public that yes, our governments are here resistant against the lobby power. But even this, they kept secret. They did not want us to know this. Yeah? And the only thing which will in the end will officially be public is the so-called common position of the council, where then nobody really knows how this has come about. So they do it, they do it with every with every single regulation, they keep it secret until the very end when we see the result. In terms of where to go from here, then I know it's a big question, but as you say, as it works now, it's not very sustainable. It takes a, a lot of you know, manpower from yourself and your team and, and, and other journalists who are specialists at investigative journalism and getting these sources that you must have within the institutions. Um, surely the goal is for some type of institutional change. Are there any realistic paths for that to, uh, to, to come to fruition by? And are you at all hopeful that it might happen at some point, or um, does it feel quite um, hopeless for you when you when you keep um, uh, harassing them for information? <laughs> no, I'm relatively sure it's only a matter of time. 
You know, there are a lot of politicians from many European countries and, of course, in the European Parliament, the large majority, who are convinced that in particular this way of legislation in the Council is one of the basic reasons why so many European citizens are so are so suspicious, they, why, why, they, why they do not trust this European legislation, because actually the European citizens do not know how European laws come about. So they do not trust it, and it, it, it fosters resentments. These governments, while keeping the secret what happens in the council, they themselves are the main reason yeah, why so many citizens do not trust uh, the European institutions. And I know there is a line, an alliance of countries, of at least seven countries, who are putting pressure inside the council on the others to reform it. Uh, funnily, I got hold even of the document when, it, when they had to, had to decide about our own confirmatory application, as it is called, um, when they had to decide whether they deliver us the, the respective documents. Um, I saw the document showing that seven countries explicitly said, give these documents to the journalists, but they were overruled by the majority. So there is already a minority which is putting pressure on them. Second, and this is even more important, there are already five judgments from the European Court of Justice saying that the council with the secrecy practices violates the European treaty. And we have talked to several prominent lawyers and even former general counsels of the European Court of Justice who say that the council permanently violates not only the treaty, but also the case law of the European Court of Justice. And one of them said, when we asked, well, what can we do? He said, go to court, sue them. It's only a matter of time until the judges will lose their patience. I think. It's, it's worth our effort to, 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 to raise this issue again and again until the wall comes down and until at least, maybe they will never make their meetings public, but at least they will be forced to public minutes. And this will be a large step forward. So there's at least some hope. Thank you, um, Harald. We're, we're out of time, unfortunately. There are lots of things, I'm sure. I could discuss with you in terms of specific backs and forths and, uh, and and secrecy in this. But thank you so much for for coming on the podcast and sharing your your insight into this this issue that I think is is important to discuss and important for people to to know about. And um, with what you're saying, it, it'll be interesting to follow any any developments sort of in the direction of transparency um, of the council. So yeah, thank you for for speaking to us. Thank you very much for having me and. Um... If you want to know more, look at our website, investigateeurope.eu. Thank you for listening to the EuropeLex podcast. To stay up to date with European politics, make sure you subscribe. And of course, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Telegram, and YouTube. We're spreading across as many platforms as we can. Uh, you can find us at europelex.eu and at europelex across all social media, except Instagram, where we're at at Europe underscore Lex. See you next time. You've been listening to the Europe Lex podcast hosted by me, Ewan Healy, and my colleague, Gabriel Hedengren. The managing editor was Polychronis Karampolas. The script was written by our hosts and our writing team, Matthew Nicholson, Yorgos Kokoris, Guillaume Ferreira de Senda, and Yanis Arshakian. 
The music was by Jose Alvarado, and everything we do is possible because of our patrons on Patreon. Great. Uh, I'm going to stop recording.